Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, film fans? Uh, we have a killer episode for you today. And I mean that almost, I guess, literally as well <laughs> <Yeah>. as figuratively. because <laughs> And figuratively. <laughs> this is one of my, like, honestly, one of my favorite scenes in movies. Just like when you, when you talk about, uh, I guess, Canadian film, but also just like mm-hmm. m- scenes that really stand out in cinema history. This is one I continuously come back to because it's, uh, it's a cool turning point scene. Uh, and I know we're going to dive into it so much today, but uh, I'm just over the moon excited to talk about this with you. Yeah, we're talking about a history of violence today. Uh, belated happy Canada Day to all our listeners up here north of the border with us. And a happy belated 4th of July to everyone south of the border. And uh, hi to everyone listening international or, or beyond that. Um, uh, we do cover a lot of American filmmakers on here. Obviously, we've got a... Uh, We've got a soft spot for Denis Villeneuve, one of the uh, more iconic Canadian filmmakers right now. But given that it was uh, July, we thought we'd talk about some other Canadian films. Uh, This was the one that Tay and I picked, A History of Violence, one of David Cronenberg's movies. And maybe one of his less, um, less obviously Cronenberg movies in terms of, I think, the couple things that people immediately think of when they think of Cronenberg. Um, Less Cronenbergian. Yes, less Bergian for sure. Not quite so much body horror, not so much goop, uh, not not so much slime. But I actually think this is a great introduction. If anyone listening, this is your first Cronenberg movie. I think as we discuss it and you sort of see the things that Cronenberg is obsessed with talking about, they're all present in this movie, but just not in the ways that they are normally visually and surface level present in his other movies. Yeah, I think... Cronenberg is obviously a master filmmaker who kind of initiated his career with films that explicitly dealt with body horror. Uh, It's kind of how he made his mark in the Canadian film landscape at a time where no Canadian filmmakers were doing that. Um, And he made he made himself into an international commodity because he was talking about or he was focusing on themes and visuals that no one else could really do the same way. And I... (laughs) When he got to this point in his career, when he's making a history of violence, and then he followed it up with a couple other uh, more dra- dramatic films, not mm-hmm. not predicated upon body horror. Uh, almost all of them had Viggo Mortensen in them too. It yeah. almost seemed like a turning point for Cronenberg, and he almost seemed like he was, I guess, a simpler way. A simpler way of looking at it would be he's maturing as a filmmaker. He's dealing with more mature themes and concepts. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> then he, we just went and saw crimes of the future a few weeks ago and he went yeah. full on back to body horror so he went right back to it this is just a phase of his career is all is the final point to all that i guess yeah crimes of the future was great because it does have that kind of it smacks of that thing that i think a lot of sort of older directors do where they're like do i still got it right like especially like the thing that you know me for can i still pull it off um i think that's always a really engaging thing for them to go after uh, even when it doesn't work or it does work. And, and for the record, I'm, I'm a fan of Crimes of the Future. It sat very well with me. Um, like all Cronenberg movies, I think they're generally the story can leave you a little off kilter. There are some things that I think maybe in a traditional movie setting you'd be more concerned with, and he's not. I think there's a very pragmatic approach that he takes to movies, both in terms like I love, we've talked about this before, obviously off mic, Tay, but 
half the time when he has a leading man in his movie and people will ask him like in interviews about the casting process, he's like, well, Rob Pattinson was available and he wasn't terribly expensive. So, uh, it was a good fit for the movie. It's almost not quite as concerned with their performance skills as he is with, listen, I know a Vigo, you know, post Lord of the Rings or Pattinson post twilight is on the poster. More people will see it and I can make them work for this character, but he's got other priorities with the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, I heard him say, actually, just in my research for this, that he doesn't have, he, he's not drawn into star power. Like, he doesn't get obsessed and hung up on celebrities and actors who mm. are big personalities in the business. He yeah. likes people who look like they fit into his everyday reality, and he mm -hmm. casts his actors based on people who he thinks that he wants to look at, and he obviously has a very different idea than the general public even though he's casting pretty notable stars like Viggo Mortensen and Robert Pattinson as his leads in his past you know handful of films mm -hmm. but I think people think that Robert Pattinson is a superstar but really he has been a glorified indie darling for most of his career he's and, a weirdo and he's a weirdo yeah. and and I think yeah. Vigo fits into some category similar to that in the sense that he's not he is an A-list talent, but he doesn't act like a movie star, doesn't have that persona about him. He almost has this humility and humbleness to his roles. Yeah. Yeah, Vigo, I just realized Vigo and Pattinson have some of some of my favorite like long-form interviews. Um, mm -hmm. when, when Pattinson was in lockdown in London during Batman's filming, the Batman's filming, uh, there's this great GQ article about him just sort of losing his mind in lockdown and like making a weird pasta dish in tinfoil in the microwave and trying to create like like mobile pasta. Um, it's very it's very weird. And Mortensen's got this great long form interview where he he breaks into this sort of um, like this sort of sermon about how great McDonald's fries are. <laughs> they're both just they're Those both are, just odd guys I'll, I'll link i'll link both the interviews they're they're really interesting stuff those and, both sound uh, bizarre yeah just like odd guys and you're right they do not have a conventional stardom um i do think that cronenberg is prudent in knowing that listen like if i can get these guys at an okay salary that fits my budget they'll help the movie be seen and i think they there also, is that awareness yeah they also fit they fit what i need <laughs> for the role Right. But he's I don't I never get the impression from these interviews that he is courting these people or really seeking someone who's hot right now. You know, yeah, I don't um, I don't think he has that mindset where he's like, I need this actor in this time and place because they fit. I think it's kind of who's available when I'm trying to shoot yeah. my movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that that's one of the things I think he, he really strikes me as a very functional filmmaker. He kind of treats this like a job and like a business, but also allows him to explore his obsessions through a specific art that can do specific things. And we're going to talk about that obsession here is that it, he's he's never not been focused on our own relationship to our bodies and how fundamentally weird that is. And I, I think this month in doing History of Violence first and then the audience voted and chose The Fly, which we're going to release in two weeks, I think you get a great A-B uh, of that. And one of them is so much more surface level and visceral and visually um, exploratory of that concept. And this one's a lot more dramatic in a character study. But uh, with that note, we should probably uh, try to get through a little bit of our paperwork here. 
Um, so if you haven't seen it, A History of Violence uh, is about a small town diner owner named Tom Stahl who makes national news by easily dispatching two criminals who threatened his staff. Seeing him on TV, dangerous men from the Philadelphia mob invade Tom's life, believing him to be an associate of theirs long thought dead. Starring Viggo Mortensen and Maria Bello, A History of Violence was directed by David Cronenberg and released on September 23rd, 2005. Canadians can watch it on Crave right now. And I was going to say one of the more functional things about Cronenberg, uh, I think almost all his movies make a tidy profit. None of them are massive hits, right? They have this very just sort of prudent art house thing where they, they usually go to Cannes. They usually get talked about because there's something shocking in them that might make someone faint in the audience or make someone get up and walk out. But they always make some money. Uh, this one in particular, $32 million budget, which I think is a little higher than you'd expect. And a 61.4 million return at the box office. And the tagline, everyone has something to hide. I mean, yes, $32 million seems like a high amount for this movie in 2005, particularly. Mm -hmm. But I do think that star power cost them a lot for this film. I think that bringing in the heavy hitters like uh, William Hurt and Ed Harris costs you money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think even Maria Bello is a more expensive co-star than Cronenberg's used to signing up. Yeah, probably. I, I think. You know, Morten- Mortensen's, know. Mortensen's coming off of Lord of the Rings and then just Hidalgo, yes. which may have even been the same year. It was so the same have, year. So, yeah, this this pr- was produced at the same time. He was basically commanding a salary off of being the king in The Return of the King, right? And, like, yeah. one of the more notable people in those movies and a new presence from those movies. He had had a... Mortensen had had a nice active career. He wasn't not working before this, but it was really when he was semi last minute brought into Lord of the Rings after the original Aragorn was uh, was sacked um, that really really brought him into the forefront. Yeah, and he kind of exploded after Lord of the Rings, and I think a lot of people wanted him in their movies. So, and I know from the interview that I watched with him about History of Violence, he didn't even yeah. like this original script. Yeah. Which is pretty wild to think about. Um, now, I did look into the scriptwriter Josh Olson a little bit. I honestly mm-hmm. was pretty disappointed with his <laughs> filmography. It, it's literally like nothing that I've even heard of, and everything that was on his credit list looked pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and then in an interview that I, I found a piece of trivia that in an interview, apparently Vigo said that he didn't, agreed to do the original script it was only after he spoke with david cronenberg uh and who told him he was going to rework the script that he agreed to do the movie and then apparently cronenberg did completely rework the script without taking any credit away from the screenwriter josh olson yeah which is an, an interesting sort of process so that yeah this movie is based on a graphic novel from 1997 by the same name and written by John Wagner, which I really wanted to read before I got this, but I had a hard time getting my hands on a copy. Um, My unfounded guess is that the script is way closer to the graphic novel, and my understanding is that the graphic novel just has way more instances of violence and explore and more graphic somehow, which, again, I think there's so many aspects of this movie where you're like, Cronenberg made this movie and it looks like this. And I just think it's a much more subtle and graceful execution of the things that he does anyway. Cause there are these shocking moments where you see the effects of violence in this movie, all things that line up with his extensive experience with um, 
squibs, with um, movie blood, with movie injuries, with effects like that. And I do think we will discuss Cronenberg's use of violence and gore a lot more when we talk about The Fly. So I don't want to waste all mm-hmm. that conversation today. Yeah. Uh, but there is something to be said about how this movie does use violence. And we're going to talk about it a lot during our scene. But Cronenberg has a way of using graphic imagery. And I don't even want to say violence because it's not all pertaining to violence necessarily, but graphic imagery of the body and of the human form that is very disturbing to see. And he does this in almost every film, even his dramatic ones like this that are less predicated on gore. But it's it's always in place of... Like, you know, it's never useless information. It's always, and it's never for the sake of glorifying gore or violence. I think the way he uses bodies in these distorted ways really transforms the audience uh, in a way that I think only cinema truly can with its use of close ups. Uh, I don't think stage can get this kind of reaction. I think that the gut feeling you get from seeing human beings in real situations and then the violence that erupts from those scenarios really has an impact on an audience on any clear thinking audience member Mm -hmm. yeah i know i think that's a really great distinction and we've talked about this with a couple filmmakers before where they are they're doing something that could only be done in this medium there are a lot of movies that i really like that would be great stage plays or based on stage plays right (laughs) Right? (laughs) or even audiobooks things like that things like that where like visuals are supplementary but there are there are a handful of filmmakers who know that what they're doing can only be done here and they use the art form to its fullest extent um and just in line with what you were talking about about um the way that he presents uh violence or gore or destruction or modification or augmentation of the human body i think um there is a great interview that came out in the promotion of this um, movie, which I have a nice quote from. I, I'll pull a couple parts out of it. I'll try not to keep, make it too long, but I will uh, link it in the show notes. I highly recommend it. So in speaking about this movie, but sort of his career as a whole leading up to this movie, he says, for me, the first fact of human existence is the human body. Um, I'm not an atheist, but for me to turn away from the aspect of the human body to me is a philosophical betrayal. He said there's a lot of art and religion whose whole purpose is to turn away from the human body. I feel in my art that my mandate is not to do that. He thinks there's there's a a very disturbing sort of uh, contradiction at play in our existence where he asks, how can we be dis- disgusted by our own bodies? This fundamental disconnect of are our bodies us or to what degree are they other from our mind or our consciousness to the extent that they can gross us out? I think it's a great question. Right? Shouldn't we be fully in tune with all aspects of our body all functions of it. And and furthermore to what you said, he said, uh, I don't ever feel that I've been ex- exploitive in a crude, vulgar way or just doing it to get attention. And then in terms of this movie, something I really want to talk about is he says, the body does not know what was the morality of the act. And him sort of talking about in this movie, you get to explore what you would say are justified actions, justified instances of violence. And he kind of wants you to think about the fact that like to a body... A gunshot's a gunshot. It doesn't matter whether the person in that body is a bad person or a good person, things like that. So I think there's some very careful exploration of the ideas of violence, our predilections for violence as a species and in our culture. In, 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 uh, in, I mean, he comments, I think, more on America or at least the West in general. 
Um, yeah, I, I really like this part of the... It's a very long quote, but I, I really like this mm-hmm. part where he says, um, there's an audience that's definitely going to applaud these acts of violence, and they do because it's set up that these acts are justifiable and almost heroic at times. But he's mm-hmm. calling all of this into question by showing you the result of violence on the human body, which, like you said, is indifferent to the act itself. It's indifferent to the morality. It's indifferent right? to the morality of the act. Pain, pain, pain is the only response to these things. There is no qualified pain in being like, well, you know, he was a good guy. I was, I was threatening his family, or vice versa. Yes. So it's like the sense of objectivity that the body is providing. Yeah, and I think key to that is that in... I would say, like, this movie is not overstuffed with violence. It very carefully chooses when there are going to be these interactions. And in every one, there is a key shot, which I don't think is overdone or overstays it welcome. It's welcome. Where you see someone breathing through a, a, an injury. Yeah, I think in every single one. You've got in the diner scene, there's, there's the guy who's, who's bleeding into the floor and still breathing. Uh, on the lawn scene that we're going to talk about, you see the guy after having his nose destroyed by by the heel of uh, Tom Stahl's uh, hand, and uh, and and in, in the final scene in Philadelphia too, you got the guys lying on the floor, and I think it's not hitting you over the head and being like, now we're going to sit with this victim for two minutes or find out about they were a father and they had kids or things like that. It's strictly. Here's the effect. Here's here's what we're left with. Here's how here's how horrible this is. Even if it was self defense, even if it was even if it was heroic. Yeah, and it certainly has a lasting impact. I know a lot of people who intentionally avoided this movie because they mm-hmm. think it's Cronenberg and they see the title and they understand. Oh, this is going to be like full of violence from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I try and correct people when they have this preconception of the movie because I think this is one of his most poignant in terms of his uh, what he's saying about violence mm-hmm. because he chooses his spot so carefully and there isn't a huge focus on the gore itself but the small bits of information we do see of gore are truly impactful in a way that's almost haunting and I, I so yeah. in that sense I do understand why people might not like this movie after they see it but there seems to be this hesitation to even step in to see this movie yeah and that's kind of the reputation he builds himself with uh with movies like the fly that we're going to talk about next um which makes talking about cronenberg movies to people who haven't seen them a little bit difficult i remember it's with tough. my yeah with my roommate i was like hey listen i'm gonna watch history of violence for the podcast make some notes um do you want to watch it and we recently in our film club just gone through dead ringers which is a highly unsettling movie that that Cronenberg uh, made uh, prior to this uh, in, in the nineties. And, um, and I was just kind of like, it's still Cronenberg. There's very unsettling aspects, but I said, there are fewer um, like surface level gore effects. There are fewer, it's less about that. And I said, it's more of a character study and I think it's worth seeing. And, uh, and, and I mean, roommate really enjoyed it. Found it very, I think it's a very enriching movie. It's very complex. It leaves you with a lot to think about. But I definitely remember the first time I saw this movie, there's a guy who gets his throat stomped, and that's the visual I remembered. That that one um, gets me more than almost any of the other instances of yeah. violence or gore. In this one, I mm-hmm. just... And just it's bloodless. The, the thought of it is just yeah. nasty. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's his truly expert knack at directing those physical effects, where you know that's like, 
that's a prop, that's a dummy, that's a, a silicon neck with like a structure built into it that can collapse partially when when Vigo brings his uh, his cowboy boot down on it. But uh, it that it's the it's his it's one of his uh, like key talents is making making these visuals combined with very carefully selected foley that you remember. Yeah. So just to touch on that really quick, he like his use of practical effects for gore is what truly puts him over the top. And it's why his movies still like even his seventies movies look better than almost every movie that uses CGI gore. Now it's Mm -hmm. wild to me that people still think that you should use CGI, even though CGI has come so far to use, to do things like blood spatter and, uh, body mutilation. I just don't understand why you don't go practical because it's such a tangible thing and you're always shooting close-ups of these things. Uh, and so just to compare it, because this is what my uh, viewing habits have been lately, I've been trying to get through this latest season of Stranger Things, which is obviously like very long. Um, and I, I've enjoyed it, but the gore is so unimpactful or uneventful to me. Mm-hmm. There's almost no consequence to it because it's flat and it's dull it's not real it's not three dimensions to me yeah. i can see right through most of the gore that they're trying to get away with and then mm-hmm. you turn your attention to history of violence and you watch you can like see like the throat crunch under a boot yeah it's gonna stick with you a lot more yeah no that's the thing these are these are the things that are going to make it last and i did just want to also i'll link to this but i want to quote scorsese um who, who wrote back in 1984 a little tribute to Cronenberg where he's talking about um, post seeing uh, shivers, which was um, uh, Cronenberg's first movie. In my opinion, it's the scariest. Yeah. And so he, he talks about, it's a great thing. I'll link the full thing, but he basically says like, I made it through the movie in an ever increasing stupor of shock and depression. When it ended, I thought I didn't like it, but a year later I found myself still thinking, sorry, page over about it and talking about it to anyone who would listen um to be blunt there were a lot of people who wouldn't listen cronenberg was a strange name and my friends were dubious about the canadian cinema anyway <laughs> still i kept talking and then at the end i love um he just sort of sums up by saying i think a lot about cronenberg's movies i wish i didn't i look forward to the new ones i wish i didn't i still have the old power <laughs> i love that which quote. is that's great which is yeah it's really good stuff and i think it really gets to the thing is that I mean, we talked about this in the horror movies, too, is that cinema doesn't always have to make you feel happy or good, optimistic or good. I think there is power in effect, regardless of the effect. And I think we're talking about one of the masters of affecting an audience. You know, what? Uh, and, and he's worth remembering for that reason. <laughs> not trying to toot my own horn here, but I had almost the yeah. same exact reaction as Scorsese. I did not <laughs> want to like Shivers. And then a year yeah. later, I'm like telling people, yo, Shivers is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, and it still haunts my dreams. Mm-hmm. Please watch this movie so I can talk to someone about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah, I, no, that's the thing. Very it's much these things that. that compel you. It's what, it is one of those things where you're like, you're like, I don't want to watch it again, but I need to find someone who's watched it so I can talk about it with them. Yep. Um, yeah, haven't gone all back these to things it. to say yeah all these things to say if you haven't watched history of violence yet and you're listening to this and now between scorsese's account and and ours and how we're sort of ramping up on this you're worried about watching it i do think this is a great entry point because it just you're not having to watch a man turn into a fly as we're going to talk about in two weeks which can be a little bit more 
toe curly and, <laughs> and, and shiver inducing and stuff like that. Um, uh, just a few things I wanted to touch on with Cronenberg before we get into yeah. our scene today. Yeah. Um, just watching some of the behind the scenes on this film was really great. There's a, it's a very low quality version of it, but I do believe it was shot on like DV tape. <laughs> So back in 2004 when they were shooting this. So mm-hmm. like the behind the scenes is like a janky looking video. Uh, yeah. Also a fun fact, this was the last film ever released on VHS format, which they yeah. they only found out years later when LA Times, I think, did a paper on VHS as a history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, lo- I love that fact. Do you, you have yeah. a VHS on the shelf behind you? I do not. Uh, you don't have it, this one? This one's gonna is one of the top ones on my list. I'll like gotta try and yeah. find a copy of this. Yeah. Should be easy, right? If it's the last one. <laughs> You would think so. Um, but anyways, in the behind the scenes, there's just a lot of really cool things I wanted to point out about Cronenberg. Um, some, like, there's very few filmmakers who operate like this, at least outwardly speak like they act like this. Um, but he mm-hmm. shows up on site, doesn't do any storyboarding, but does all his blocking with his actors when he gets to the locations. A lot of the stuff you was saying reminded me a lot of Soderbergh and the way he approaches his craft which is kind of figuring it out with the cast and crew in the moment on the day and the only difference between doing this and storyboarding is you just schedule your time differently it's not like he's wasting everybody's time on set doing this he schedules this time ahead so he has this ability to do this with his collaborators on site Uh, and this is just a master filmmaker doing what he does best in his own way that's why he's a true auteur and it's why I think his movies are consistently so good. Um, he has worked with the same DOP for almost his whole career, uh, Peter Sushisky. Um, mm-hmm. And they like their collaboration just seems so on point when they're talking. Um, they're both very humble. They both work together really well, take each other's ideas. And then you, when you add in when you add in uh, Ronald Sanders, the editor, yes, the the trio the trio is unbeatable in in the flow of a given scene and we'll get into it but i just wanted to yes. throw that name in there now. no ronald's yeah ronnie sanders is an excellent excellent editor who once again only really works with cronenberg he stepped out of there a few times but has worked with cronenberg for even longer than i think sushitsky has um and some really cool things uh with his actors he really lets them kind of collaborate and work out their own backstories character arcs uh actions there's all these funny stories about Vigo finding all these small town America props and bringing them to the set and in trying to put them, find spots for them in his like diner. And Cronenberg was like all for this. He loved all these, all this collaboration with his actors. Um, the two crooks at the beginning or the like criminals at the beginning, Leland and Billy created their whole own backstory as well as Vigo and Ed Harris. They created their own whole backstory that doesn't enter the film's mm-hmm. context at all. And I just love hearing stuff like this. It really makes it seem like Cronenberg lets his actors do exactly what they want on set, and he gets the most out of them that way. Yeah, by letting them do. Yeah, their no, thing. it's it's wild when you hear that. Yeah, someone with such a reputation as an auteur, even just in the effect of what they produce, you know a Cronenberg movie when you see a Cronenberg movie, and when someone tells you you're about to watch one, you kind of know what to expect, which means yeah. he has a very established iconography tone feel and and production and yet he's somehow offering this much collaboration this much freedom to the people around him 
it, it's no small uh, achievement to, be, no, to have both really of not. those things. It's usually one or the other. Yeah, and, and I think the way that he does it so consistently is why it works. Because he lets all of his actors kind of have this freedom, and it's across all of his films that he kind of is doing the same. He has the same strategy. Um, well, and while we're while we're sort of talking about his collaborators, I do want to touch on Howard Shore. Oh, um, sure, sure. Uh, very, very prolific uh, filmmaker, or sorry, uh, very prolific uh, composer of film scores, and I mean, most notably, probably the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, uh, soundtrack. Uh, did all three movies they're very iconic they're very sort of important music seeing just i think he established just on that note seeing his credit list before and after lord of the rings is pretty mm-hmm. wild to look at the difference in the caliber of films he was working on i think i think yeah he got a lot of business off lord of the rings uh, but he's worked with cronenberg a number of times most recently he did crimes of the future and i think that's a killer score i do want to uh shout out again my my roommate annie uh, she very accurately, when, when we started getting into this movie and you hear what Shore's doing, she's like, Howard, it's a little lazy. <laughs> no there's way. a lot, there's a lot of stuff that, um, is like just a couple steps to the left or right of what he did in Lord of the Rings. Um, just the last couple of years, like I'll, I'll see if I can find the exact hits, but like there's, there's, um, there's this thriller, more suspenseful uh, music cue that he uses. Even the scene we're going to talk about when Fogarty and his men are pulling up. It's like this rising series of whole tones that are over top of each other. Uses a very similar thing for like orcs and for like bad guys in Lord of the Rings. So if I can find a, a drop for both of them, I'll throw them in the show notes and you can see if if me and Annie, who come from a, from a music background, are being unfair to Howard Shore <laughs> or if he was just like... Listen, I just spent like six years of my life writing stuff for Lord of the Rings. I can, I can borrow from myself, which, to be fair, tons of composers do all the time. Um, Giacchino, uh, listen, listen to his uh, his Doctor Strange and Star Trek scores back to back. They're virtually the same. <laughs> anyway, long tangent. No, no, that's um, great. Um, I don't. Sure is I don't a have big collaborator. Yeah. Shore is a big collaborator with Cronenberg, and I think he does great work. I believe he wrote the music for uh, the very tragic romantic music for The Fly that we're going to talk about in two weeks. How Shore well. did The Fly, too? I think so, oh, yeah. okay. I, I, he must be a Canadian composer, and I'm just not 100% aware. Uh, let's take a quick peek. Yep. No way. Yeah, he's he's one of ours. Wow. Happy Canada Day, Howard Shore. Howard Shore. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Way to phone this yeah. one in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do you. It works. Uh, but I think if you just saw Lord of the Rings or if you've seen it as much as so many people have, you're like, this kind of sounds like the orc theme. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, I actually, there's a couple moments where I did like the score, but I found it pretty meh overall. I like it's kind of, there's this like small town sort of pastoral stuff going yep. on when it's in the first act. I think it's really good. It, it, it's again just kind of like setting the stage for like look at how idyllic this place is i, I like and how like, that can, almost falls you, away by like midway through mm-hmm. the movie though it almost yeah. gives way to this new thrilling kind of score well i mean and yeah it just it follows the arc of the movie itself where just one act of violence completely erodes this town and tom Stahl himself and his life that he's established for himself um so i think all of that is in line um i think the the direction and the intent of the score works really well. I think notes on a page line up a little bit suspiciously with some other work, but again, fair enough. That's, fair a, enough. That, that's, that's fine. Um, 
And did you want to touch on any of this other stuff before we get into the scene? Uh, yeah, I think the one other thing that I just want to note is just a little bit too long for me to make my shout out. So I do just want to briefly touch on, I think, um, right now, and I think we talked about this when we did, uh, the handmaiden with, uh, with Haley, we talked about, there's kind of a modern, uh, philosophy on sex scenes that like, they're kind of frivolous. They're titillating for no purpose. You're just kind of showing off some hot people on screen and moving and not really touching on the plot and maybe not even like informing anything about their characters i think this movie has two of the best most dramatically loaded and motivated sex scenes in modern cinema that i think i saw your statement on paper and i was like that's a pretty big statement to make but i i like it i think i think like not like i don't think either of these scenes are as interested with giving the audience something to ogle at as they are with telling you things about their characters or even moving along the arc of those characters so you got Again, I'll try to keep it really brief, but you got the two scenes, one of them very early. It's in your first act before Tom's facade starts coming away. And it really details this middle-aged couple that's very loving. They're engaged with one another. It also, though, tells you that, like, she she makes this point that, like, we never got to be teenagers. So they kind of, like, do this more youthful role play with a cheerleading outfit and things like that. At the same time, you're getting all this character info about Tom where he, he like, he literally calls her naughty and then you realize who Tom is later in the movie and, and like it's such a ridiculous statement for him to say but it's also like there's it's this very sort of touching scene I think there's a lot of intimacy there and familiarity and comfort and trust all of which gets shattered and then by the time you get to the second sex scene it's a completely different beast it, there's all this sort of base passion there's there's use of force there's 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 violence in it. I think they're changing roles of dominance between Mortensen and Bello over the course of the scene. Now there was controversy um, about that one particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cronenberg got called out for it being a rape scene and mm-hmm. he quickly defended himself on that. And I think Maria Bello also defended that. Yeah. Um, they literally put in the moment where she grabs Tom and f- kind of grabs yeah. him and pulls him into it just to avoid that misconception yeah and i i think yeah i I think there in the text there are there there is total like um depiction of consent i I think so in the scene when maria bello um sort of engages with it but i don't i also don't think um there's there's any argument about it being a very complex and gray area scene because it starts out with instances of violence and they show you after that scene the marks that she has on her back from the stairs, which you put in the note, that wasn't an effect put in. No, so Cronenberg, when he wrote, like, I think I think they said that he kind of wrote this scene, so my guess is it wasn't in the original script, but don't quote me on that. But mm-hmm. he said that he was most worried about this scene out of any scene in the movie because he didn't want the actors yeah. to get hurt. And mm-hmm. they literally did this on stairs. Um, like farm, old farm stairs, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no cushion or um but they did have padding and there's a funny story mm-hmm. about the stuntman saying he had never been asked to provide padding for a sex scene before yeah which is pretty funny um <laughs> that's the pull quote yeah which that was so that was pretty funny but um Cronenberg said that the actors really wanted to do it at, with as little 
interruption as possible. Mm -hmm. So in the end, Maria Bello did have massive bruising around her neck, and they chose to add that scene of her like rubbing it on when she's on her bed. Well, and she's got marks down her spine yeah. too so, from like the stairs. So all that they added that mm -hmm. scene because she had those bruises for real. Yeah. So they wanted to show the damage that the shoot literally caused and she was fine she was okay but yep. it was a very physically exhausting scene for both of them uh, and she took the brunt of it obviously yeah and like it would be emotionally exhausting yep. and i think that that sort of harkens back to the collaboration there i think wisely as a director he's saying okay well let's pad so let's make it as safe as possible well, well let's run through it with stunt people things like that and then you kind of give the actors their space and if they're like you know what, I think it's going to be more visceral, more realistic, or I'll be able to give a better performance if I'm not knowing that I've got this safety pad on my back, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that's sort of what you end up with. It's never something that you necessarily aim for. And again, I just want to touch on these. We could do an entire podcast about how these function dramatically and in terms of the plot and the characters, but I just think it's worth noting that... I, I think some people are right when they say that, yeah, like in a James Bond movie, a sex scene's really just going to show two great bodies um, and sort of just be like, that's how that interaction ends. And then we'll cut to them waking up or walking on the beach. This one, you learn things about the characters as you go. It moves the plot along. And then you can, you can write essays about even the visualization with the idea that this is where she's like, knows he's Joey, doesn't know the man that she married and things like that. And he's literally trying to drag her down the stairs, like drag her down into his world. Um, I think they're dramatically rich and I think that's very impressive, but uh, we don't have to go any, any deeper into it. Cause I think we could easily get lost in the weeds. No, I think that's a, like that could have easily been a scene we discuss on the podcast. Like mm -hmm. if there's, it's a loaded scene full of context and character moments. Uh, and it's also incredibly interesting to talk about from, a production standpoint how they shot it like what mm -hmm. went into it from the actor's perspective so i'm glad yeah. that you had that in the notes i think it's important to bring up these the two sex scenes because they really complement what we've been saying about cronenberg as not just someone who flourishes and showing gore he really mm -hmm. really has this sense of humanity about him that i think is very real and credible and I, you feel like these people are real people at the very least even if you don't agree with their actions or what they do in the mm -hmm. film they feel like real moments and act and real decisions that characters would make and i mean given his obsession with our connection to our own bodies i mean sex would be an important part of that discussion yep. and his exploration of these themes and that's why they often show up in his movies we'll talk about one there's ones in the fly which are more based around this guy's changing body and his changing nature. And there are ones, I mean, there, there's ones in dead ringers too, that are about different things. Um, but I think they're almost always, I mean, I, I just, I don't want to say a hundred percent because I don't have them all listed and cataloged. I think they're, they're important parts of the script, not just, uh, not just eye candy or something else or something, a way to end a scene. Right. And with that, I think we can get into our scene for the day. Oh yeah, definitely. We have, <laughs> we have waded through the weeds long enough yeah <laughs> um so like i said earlier this is one of my favorite scenes i think in movie history just because of how many things how many amazing things happen in this scene so the scene takes place from 5208 to 5801 so we got a nice succinct six minute action scene here in the scene, Fogarty and his men roll up to the Stahl homestead with Jack as their captive. They demand that Tom come back with them to Philadelphia in exchange for Jack, his son. 
Uh, Edie watches from the inside as Jack is let go. Uh, Tom then bursts into a moment of violence, shattering his small town facade. And we're going to dive right into exactly all the damage he does. But the scene, just to mm-hmm. clarify, stars Viggo Mortensen, Maria Bello. Um, and Jack is played by Ashton Holmes. And Carl Fogarty is obviously played by Ed Harris, the wonderful Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ed Harris really, like, making a meal out of, like, a Philly accent. Oh, yeah. Like, like an almost dead eye from a barbed wire incident, which... Again, like, I don't know, like, I wonder if that was Mortensen and Harris being like, here's our backstory. You tried to, like, you know, we had a we had a falling out in the mob, and then you tried to remove my eye with barbed wire, which I don't know functionally how you would do that, and maybe that's why it, it's such a palpable idea. You got to barb it. Is that, <laughs> well, like, but, like, again, like, you're going to take out an eye. Don't you want, like, a utensil, like a spoon or a knife or something? I guess it was, it was the most <laughs> practical thing he had to eject an yeah. eyeball. Mm. And I mean, I think it's just like it's a um, it's a loaded idea where it does kind of make you think like, wait, what? Because someone says like he came at me with like a grapefruit spoon to get my eye or, or like a melon baller. You're like, oh, I see how that works. It's gross and it's violent. But like I see it's one to one the function. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> We're really getting in the weeds already. Um, you were really <laughs> intent on, and I didn't argue because it is a great scene, but you were really intent on doing this scene. Why does the scene stick with you? Why was it first to mind? I just like how, so I try and think back to the first time I watched this movie and what I actually thought was going on with Tom Stahl. Because in my memory, you really don't know that he's Joey until this scene. Mm-hmm. You kind of have an idea. And Ed Harris, which you generally... Uh, generously put in the notes ed harris in the scene prior to this really makes a convincing argument to Edie about mm-hmm. why J- he is joey not yeah. tom not tom and in this scene you really like this is where it all unfolds and so much of the, like everything in the movie changes and it becomes a different movie after this point so i really like mm-hmm. that this scene is a genuine turning point for the whole film for every character in it um, and it's also a scene with a tremendous like crux in the middle of it. Like the action point is amazing, mm-hmm. and it 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 has so much juicy context. It's so full of flavor, and uh, I don't know. There's just so much to the actions in the scene. There, there's a lot of consequence and uncertainty that's generated from the scene. Like you don't, you really genuinely have no idea where the movie's going to go after this point. Yeah. Which I like yeah, all no, those this things. Scene, yeah. Yeah. This scene functions in a lot of ways like a midpoint dramatically, I'd say. Yeah. It's not quite, it's a little bit, a little bit too far past the midpoint to call it that in terms of runtime because another point in this movie's favor, ooh, it's a quick 96 minutes. Yes, it is. Isn't that, isn't that nice? It was so nice. Without feeling rushed. No. Every no. single scene feels patient and slow. And then you read like it's done and you're like, oh, that. <laughs> That was barely like just an hour and a half or so, and uh, you know I'm out of the theater. I'm off the couch, which uh, you know I might my, my give give a hand to, to David Cronenberg for pulling that off. Anyone sub two hours these days is impressive. I say that though, I got no problem with three hour movies. Um, they're great, but just usually when they're not a franchise movie or or some big blockbuster event. Yes, um, to all that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So before the scene, you have Fogarty saying to Edie, why is he so good at killing? Which is just such a great sort of like 
um, mission statement for this scene where like the family is all set up because like I think you had mentioned in the notes uh, in a prior scene Tom hits Jack. Yeah, that's right Jack, before this scene. Yeah, Jack had beat up a kid at school and just is a natural at it. Let's be honest, <laughs> he really he he really beats up his bully. Um, so you have like the Tom Jack relationship. You have that instance of violence, something that never would have happened before in this idyllic space. And then Edie is now unsure because of such a good argument that I think Fogarty makes about it. And then, so the stakes in this scene, I think are very complex because it's like, okay, well, someone's going to get hurt. Like, are they going to hurt Tom? Um, and then they pull Jack out of the car and you're like, oh no, is Jack going to be a hostage? Uh, is he, is who's going to get hurt? But also you have these other stakes where it's like, if he is Joey Cusack, is he going to give that away? Is there any way yes. to end this scene yeah. without killing anyone? Because number one, killing is bad. <laughs> Hurting people is bad. But number two, is it going to ruin his life? Because his family, they very carefully set up that his family is watching from the window and from the door. There's no hiding this. In the diner scene, the original instance of violence, he came across as a hero. But also his family wasn't present. They didn't even see how effortlessly in many ways he he killed these men yeah and in that first scene of violence where he kills the two people robbing his diner there's like the there's the interviews with the staff on the news after and they just talk about like oh he just like reacted so quickly in the moment and they never it's like the characters don't even grasp like how good at killing he is yet mm -hmm. because obviously they're in shock and all these things come into play when you're yeah. in that kind of moment but at this point and I like that you had it in the notes. You ask, why, what are the stakes here? Because it's mm -hmm. unclear what is going through Tom's head in this moment. There's clear, like you can see all the processing happening and you could see him send Edie back inside and you could see him mm -hmm. stare down Fogarty as Jack is released. But yeah. I don't think he knows what he's going to do yet. And if he does, yeah, I, it's I think pretty concealed. Yeah, I think it is. I think you're you're really you're right. Like the first time you see this movie, I think you're like, I this could go any direction. I have no idea, right? Like it's basically once they introduce all your elements, once you know that Jack is there, it's like, is this gonna be a long hostage negotiation? Yeah. Is Jack gonna get hurt in the crossfire? And that's sort of the loss. Because when he when no Tom drops the rifle, I I I'm like, okay, you're out of weapons, and these guys have three guns on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I mean, that's, that's everybody like that, that almost like has comedic effect by the end of the movie where people drop their guards, he'll take down a well, bunch the, of yeah, people in the and third then part. someone, yeah. and then, well, the third part, but even this one, right? Cause he takes down the two thugs by the end of this and you do get a reaction shot from Harris where he's like, Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and like you yeah. get the same thing with William Hurt at the end where he's like, William Hurt has maybe the best line in the movie, but I'll leave that for my shout out. Um, no, and I mean, the other thing, just before we really get into the action, I do want to point out that I think, so, apparently this, the role of Tom Stahl, Joey Cusack, was offered to Harrison Ford. And someone uh, else. Before this. Oh, and Thomas Jane. And Thomas Jane. I don't think Harrison Ford would have pulled off the small town man. Thomas Jane could have. Um, I'd, I don't think there's much kind about Harrison Ford, and I say that in a good way. He's kind of, like, again, he's locked in our minds as a... Uh, as Han Solo, at best, he's a charming rogue. Yes. For him to run a diner, you'd be like, okay, what's his side hustle? What's going on? <laughs> Jane, Jane, I think, could have been really good. Yeah. Um, I think but he, I think he has almost Hawk. the same kind of thing going for him in the mist. Yeah, 100%. But uh, Vigo, I think, works because he does have this quiet, gentle side. 
but he also he's got a weird face let's be clear he's got a weird handsome face um my mom has always put it best she really likes him when she's when he's aragorn (laughs) and i remember she'd see she'd see him in an interview or in a different movie and she's like that guy doesn't look good clean (laughs) no he needs to be be grimy he needs a beard he needs slimy hair it looks very handsome and then they clean him up in this and you're like i like i totally buy that that guy is soft-spoken and doesn't want any trouble but like as soon as he turns again vigo's i think one of his greatest assets put to use in this movie is his eyes just go dead in a heartbeat and i don't know if they change the lighting i don't know how they do it but i think you can see when he is joey yes and And it's not even when the philly accent comes no i think it's a trick with the lighting too it's how you light the eyeballs which is like yeah the standard is you want to see a light illuminating in an actor's eyeballs uh, at almost Mm -hmm. all times like that's that's kind of the standard for how you want to shoot an actor um, and when you take that away, that's when you get those kind of that dead eye feeling or the feeling like their soul is gone. And it's used quite strategically throughout film history, actually. Yeah. But I think, yeah, he's just he's got an odd enough look that when that switch flips, yep. you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's this guy's a sociopath. Like he is a cold blooded killer. And and I think it works so well. But you see the little cracks in the Tom Stahl character. And I think the best one is at the beginning of the scene where he he's standing on the porch. And I I honestly think Vigo intentionally made it a bad line reading because it's at this point where the pressure is high enough that Tom Stahl as a character is starting to crack. And he goes, I've never even been to Philadelphia. I told you I have never been to Philadelphia. <laughs> you almost believe your own crap, don't you? And it feels like someone who hasn't rehearsed hasn't warmed up you're like let's do five more takes let's get a little bit more naturalistic and i love that they keep that that they obviously did it was either directed or chosen or i mean collaborated upon yeah. most likely yep. is that at that point tom's really stretching his um his credibility as or to, joey is stretching his credibility as tom and the way that line reading we'll throw in the audio clip. I think it, it's very like local theater kind of amateurish and I love it. Yeah. I, I, I got to think it's intentional based on the precision of direction that Cronenberg often exhibits in his scene in, in impactful scenes like this, especially. Um, and I also give credit to Vigo for pulling a line off like that because throughout the scene, you can see like, like I already mentioned it, like the gears are turning in his head about what he's going to do. Uh, and I, I compare it back to the first diner scene where he holds onto the gun a little too long after he shoots the two guys. You know, like a lot of people would drop, you know, almost like drop the like gun sweep. and yeah. like kind of freak out, like have your panic and like start crying then and there because of what yeah. you just did. Well, like he, he knows, he knows to like double check both the exactly. bodies, right? Like he sweeps the room yeah. again and you're like, oh, okay. But then right? you realize, like, you see it in his eyes or, where he's yeah. like, oh, now I need to react emotionally. In that scene, like, mm-hmm. and I don't think you get it the first time you watch the movie, but the second time when you know it's all yeah. Joey, you see his hesitation and even, like, he's like realizes he needs to put the gun down so everyone will feel calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ba- I compare that to this scene where he, like, the layers of Tom have been pulled away more. And Tom is no longer mm-hmm. as strong in his mind as it as Tom once was. He's no longer yeah. just Tom Stahl anymore. He is Joey is creeping back in through this whole moment, and then mm-hmm. it finally crests when he thinks he's about to die, um, because mm-hmm. in the end he does get shot after taking out the two guards. Um, Fogarty shoots him in the chest, 
and then he's over him with the gun, asks him if he has any final words, basically. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? Yeah, yeah. And the line... And then, and then yeah, Joey, Joey says this line, which we'll put in. I should have killed you, Mac and Philly. Yeah, Joey. You should have. And it's in his Philly accent, and you just his demeanor changes. Like it's it's yeah. this like it's not the small town man anymore. Even he's lying on the ground, he's bleeding out. He thinks he's about to be shot in the head by. And Fogarty. you can see this like sickened like, smile kind of come on his face. He's just he like knows. Yeah, he's kind of like well, he's like well, I tried. Like I did. I you know I thought it would work. Yeah. Guess I should have killed you. You know, like he's he's totally done. And then the big loss is that, and then he doesn't die. And there. Jack hears and this you, whole you, last interaction and yeah you have to be like wait did jack hear that like to what extent how far away was jack and also now jack is now jack has killed somebody jack has been tainted forever because of Um, joe or because of joey slash tom's actions in the past mm -hmm. which is this whole history of violence title recycling itself and how this Mm -hmm. how this action is then passed on from father to son and like i guess when i when i was talking about it earlier i didn't really explain myself well enough but it's stuff like this that makes the scene so juicy and rich with context because mm-hmm. he by the end of the scene you don't know did jack hear him say that last bit yeah. and what is going to happen to jack now um on a fun note uh what sorry uh i already it's um ashton holmes who plays jack mm-hmm. uh was talking in the behind the scenes about how it, incredible obviously it was being around all these a-list actors and in the in the behind scenes video, Ed Harris <laughs> gets shot by him and then turns around. He's like, "How is that? How is that, Ashton? How how'd you feel about that?" <laughs> he shoots funny. him in the back and just think yeah. just thinking about going everything going through Ashton Holmes's head. Like, I just shot Ed Harris in the back and yeah, uh, just some really good behind the scenes stuff with that. And it was really cool to see Ed Harris soak in this whole scene. They had like his. Because I think this is where they wrapped him. Because they had like him saying goodbye to everybody with his blood still, oh, with okay. his uh, yeah. squib makeup still the all squibs. over. Yeah. And then he gets like blood all over Maria Bella when she gives him a hug. It's 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 a great <laughs> little behind the scenes moment. And she's like, That's "Oh, funny. it was my fault." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. So we we've talked, yeah, we've talked about sort of the arc of this scene, the stakes, and sort of the the drama and the story in it. But I think we should talk about the production as well. I think it's very patiently directed and carefully shot. Uh, I think they they take their time to set up where we know where everybody is. Um, So you have, like, once um, Maria Bello goes back inside, you have the shot of her running upstairs and going to this window. Jack comes out of the car, and Vigo, you know, or uh, uh, Tom had dropped his rifle, so it's fairly easy to just say, you know, he gets Jack back in the house. Jack is behind the screen door. And then I love, there's this great thing. So, like, they've already established Fogarty being in this close-up, right? Uh, he's got the sun on his bad eye, you know, um, and Harris is just kind of locked in there until the action starts. And then he starts telling Tom or Joey to walk towards them. Mm-hmm. And you have Joey and Tom start in this uh, in a wide shot. It's basically like from above their head to like mid shin. And you hear Fogarty being like, all right, step up, get closer. And he steps into a medium and then there's a pause. And then like Fogarty's like, no, a little bit closer. And they come up into like mirrored close-ups it's one of the only time they really change. sets the stage for like sorry go ahead 
Yeah. Uh, I just like it really s- it sets up like your space and your location and like tells you like, okay, this is the, this is a face off. Like it is now we're ready. I think it's very Western sort of look to it. Um, sort of like a, like a, like a, a standoff, a, a shootout. Um, but I, I love how that works where you get to, instead of just cutting the shots together, you have Vigo walking from that wide into that close. The wild thing is they don't even change lenses. eh? So that's uh that's just someone working the working the focus. Yeah, so he just steps closer yeah. to the lens, and then they hold on those two frames, which I believe are both shot with the standard lens. Uh, for this movie, they shot almost the entire film on a twenty-seven millimeter lens, which is really really wide for a whole film. And so even was twenty-five, twenty-seven millimeter, twenty-seven. Oh man, that is yes. Yeah. Honestly, it's like a bit of an unorthodox lens range too. Usually, it's twenty-eight mm-hmm. millimeter, uh, at least from what I've seen as a as a standard but yeah 27 millimeter lens and that includes most of the close-ups in the film which Cronenberg said was just to make it because it felt really good seeing everything in such like a wide format yep I think it I think it lowers the stylization right because one of those sort of ways you can argue it is like again the longer the lens the further you're getting away from our natural eyes focal length right but around I don't know. What is I, it like around think, 25 to 35 is, is, is the human I think it's 33 eye, technically 33 okay. millimeters. So 33. So anywhere around there, you get a little bit more of a naturalistic look, which I think lends itself to this movie, not trying to make this action crazy exciting or, or, or make it look cinematic as much as you are walking into this guy's life in this small town and watching it fall apart. And, and, like you said, it's not cinematic in the sense where it's, there's super shallow depth of field or anything like that either. There's no stylization like that. It's actually quite deep focus mm-hmm. photography, almost the entire film, which once again really allows you to see this as like a realistic setting and location. And you mm-hmm. see all the detail in people's faces and all the emotions. Uh, I think this is a very smart way to shoot a film like this. Cronenberg is willing to mix it up. He doesn't shoot all of his movies the same way. So this being a choice... I think it was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really smart. And one of the things that you have with that, that lens and the framing is basically Tom gets to a certain point and he refuses to walk forward any further. So, uh, Fogarty sends his, one of his thugs played by Aiden divine. That guy's um, good in the movie. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I really like him. He walks up to Tom and they have to tilt the camera up to accommodate how much taller he is than Viggo Mortensen. You can see how big he is. Just visually, Visually, it's just a nice... Well, just the fact that, like, you know, arguably you would have the frame set up for him to walk into it. Right. But it's just a little hint where you're like, look at how much bigger this guy is. He's got a gun. How could could Joey possibly do anything other than just what they want? And then the action starts real fast. um, When once you basically... You you realize that Joey's just waiting for the gun to be drawn on him when he has an opportunity to do something. Because I don't think he's waiting until, like... Oh, I might die. I think he's just like I know how to get out of this. It's when you point they're your gun at a, me. They're gonna make a tactical error and and be within walking distance. Well, I mean, this is this is in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang too. They talk about how if you're holding a gun on somebody, don't be in in arms distance yeah. of them. Your bullet can cross that distance plenty fast, so don't be within reach of of the person you're holding a gun on. And um, Thug Number One makes that makes that mistake. I, his, so character's name is Charlie, um, and Great. I okay. I really like how he handles it though because i don't think he plays it like a stupid thug and just doesn't walk up to no. joey and like put the gun at him be like get in the car he like is kind of like he's like 
hands on his jacket, kind of like casual. Like, Enjoy, let's go. He kind of slowly brings the gun up. He's not like in tactical mode yet. He's not. He's not yeah. in fight or flight. He's not thinking this is going to be a breakout of violence. Mm-hmm. And Joey surprises them all once again. There, it becomes sort of a joke by the end of the movie how Joey continues to surprise everybody with his ability to he's take just guns so good away. At killing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, but um, I don't think it's a knock on. Like I don't think it is a demeaning value of the character Charlie's performance or anything like that. I really think that he plays it naturally very well, and it's just like mm-hmm. a fact of the scene, like. You're going to die because yeah, you just I, made I think, a simple casual error. Yeah, I think you're right. Or just underestimate yeah. him. And I think, but I think it, it's a good point you're making that like, he's not characterized as a stupid thug or something. I think all things considered all, all, all things on paper. You're like, yeah, it's three guys with guns. They're going to get him in the car and they're going to drive to Philly and it'll be fine. They would have an but, unorthodox level of uh, confidence in terms of their ability to get this unarmed man in their car they wouldn't have any yeah it's been like their past would teach them that they wouldn't have anything to worry about here well it's been it's been like 20 years right like how could you how could you still be like well he's not the man he once was in philly when he when he messed up my eye with barbed wire um but i mean the action begins nevertheless i think i think it's got such a carefully selected pace where you see everything that's happening you understand what's happening but it moves pretty quickly Right, and this is this is a combination of direction, cinematography, and editing, and, and makeup. It all works together so well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the action begins. You have the smash zoom on the arm break, which right? is right. Nice. Like basically, they hold the f- they hold the frame when he he wraps the arm, and then and then breaks his his elbow presumably. Yeah. And you have the zoom in, and I think it's just worth very briefly noting. Like we talk about this in episode four drag me to hell when we talk about sam raimi he loves a smash zoom his smash zooms are stylistic this smash zoom is functional i think i think it just it it underscores what's happening which is the breaking of the arm little yeah and adds a little bit of energy and speed to the scene whereas when sam raimi uses one it's a completely different intent a completely different purpose and completely different effect i would say it's more exaggerated in a raimi film too like a smash zoom of raimi's is a smash zoom this is a and usually to a face or 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 like like a silly bruce campbell face or you know kirsten dunst uh, screaming or something like that but i think i think there's a sneaky little smash zoom in here it's worth noting and then you've just got like a, a series of shots that that show you what's going on where Joey takes out thug one by, you know, he breaks his arm and there, there's a great, like, I think he hits him once in the face. And again, I love, there's this brief little effect shot, like a result shot where the guy like breathes out. He doesn't even like groan or scream in pain, but it's just kind of like, he's got like this half sigh and then Joey starts breaking his nose and you get like shot of ego, shot of Aiden, shot of ego, shot of Aiden, shot of ego, shot of Aiden. Drops him, grabs the gun. Harris reacts. Joey shoots um, the other thug. thug number two. Bunch of great squibs, and then Harris shoots Joey, and and takes him down. And it's like I didn't do the timing on it, but like what, it's maybe eleven or twelve seconds. Tops. Yeah, it's it's got to be that quick. Yeah. So how they did that makeup on Aiden Divine for that scene is was super cool. They covered it mm-hmm. really extensively in the behind the scenes that I watched. They showed the makeup artist explaining to Aiden Divine like what the steps were going to be. So the first time you see it, it's all makeup. 
it's just like blood blood effect on the nose. Second yeah. cut back is a fully prosthetic nose that's all busted. And then the third time is actually a fully green screened nose. They used yeah. a replacement on the green screened nose, which yeah. is practical. So that's why it looks so mm-hmm. good. Uh, they had his skull modeled so the, like the face would be the same mm-hmm. face shape and then they just had a piece of green over his nose and then separately they have a green screen mock-up of his face which they replace that with yeah which is just brilliant simple filmmaking it's personally and he's using it as as a tool not as a crutch right this is how i would want to make movies because i'm not about like green screen backgrounds and cgi spaces and things like that but Mm -hmm. you do need to augment modern filmmaking with things like green screen replacement and this is how you do it to a t while keeping the sense of realism about your film and i i give cronenberg 100 percent credit on that it's brilliant Mm mm-hmm and I mean, yeah, like using that nose again, as we talked about, a very important part of the scene and the other two major sequences of violence is you you have the look of the effect of violence. Here's what you're left with. And, and it's, you know, Charlie's on the ground breathing and moaning through his bleeding nose. Apparently, this is one of two instances where the Euro- the European cut had a lot more blood. Um, in it, and they 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 reduce the amount. Of it was blood supposed in, to shoot uh, in the west, the more out western. From my understanding, because yeah. in the behind the scenes, they showed what the nose was, the prosthetic nose was capable of doing, which was literally mm-hmm. geysering yeah. blood out of it. Yeah, but they really held back, and I think it works better without seeing that in this film. To be honest, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's still very shocking. It's bothersome. Like, it's like, I think you're just trained in so many action movies. It's like, yeah, you took out the thug. That guy's gonna fall out of frame, and I'll never see them again. Once again, right? but again, it's one of the key things this movies is concerned with. The violence has consequences in Cronenberg's movies. This yep. isn't, oh, I just dropped like 15 bodyguards and they're all face down without, and you can't see any of their faces. Mm-hmm. This isn't a Marvel movie. This is Cronenberg. This is, you are going to pay the consequences for violence. And the comparison cannot be more made more clear than that. Yeah. I think when it cuts to Charlie you know, drowning in his own blood through his through his destroyed nose. I think if you, for even a second or even subconsciously, uh, feel bad for him, that's Cronenberg getting to that thing where he says the body doesn't know the morality of the violence. Right. So he's allowing you just to creep into that where you're like, well, it doesn't matter how horrible that guy was. He he threatened a teenage boy. He Like if you pictured him, if you have a kid and you pictured this guy threatening your kid, all that kind of stuff. But the movie, even just for that little heartbeat, just makes you think like, that's uh, horrific. That is that is unconscionable, even given the context. Yep. Or let's let's rob the context of from away just a moment. Um, and I, I think it's it's so effective. Yeah, it really removes like for me, it's not like removing you from the scene, but it removes you from like thinking that Joey is my hero of the scene. It removes that idea mm-hmm. entirely and makes this a much more complicated matter in terms of relationship between audience and protagonist of the film. Yeah. And that seems like a pretty good no, I think, cherry on top of the scene. I think so. We There's so much more in this movie and in this scene we could get into, but really, really, really pushing our time limit. So uh, we'll, we'll talk more, more Cronenberg next week. But Happily. Just such a powerful scene and no need to retread what we've talked about. Um I think uh, yeah, we can probably go to our shoutouts. Did uh, did you want to go first? We're both uh, pointing out some actors. Yeah, I, I just really wanted to point out uh, two fantastic Canadian actors uh, who are only in the first act of the film, uh, Leland and Billy, who are played by Stephen McCaddy and Greg Brick, 
respectively. Um, I've seen Stephen McHattie in many films, uh, the star of one of my favorite Canadian films, Pontypool. Uh, I think mm-hmm. he has an amazing, amazing voice. One of the best voice His actors. Voice is so yes, good. it's yeah. so crispy and lovely to listen to. Um, that's why, and he plays a radio DJ in Pontypool. That's why I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Brick is like a new face to me. I I really like this actor. I've I think I've only seen him in this movie, but I could be mistaken. And uh, what I really liked about Greg Brick is seeing the behind the scenes and how he talked about what playing a psychopath meant for him as like a challenge as an actor. Mm-hmm. And then he talked about actor. So like one of the creepiest parts of the scene in the diner is where he. Uh, rubs his hand across the waitress's breasts and then smells it yeah like and it's really Mm -hmm. creepy so that was improv that was him and the actress the wait the who played the waitress they came up with that on the fly Mm -hmm. and didn't tell cronenberg until they were shooting and they did that oh and so he just did that naturally in the moment with and like obviously there was a collaboration like to touch to touch her in that way but um i really liked how much he brought to this role he talked to about how important it was for him and Steve McCaddy to have a background for their characters that they worked out throughout the process of shooting, mm-hmm. which never enters the story. But it was I just liked everything Greg Brick kind of had to say about what this role meant for him. And I thought that as two, um, as two thugs at, that kind of you're with from the very beginning of the movie, they really operate effectively until like their demise in this mm-hmm. kind of fun way where they are at the beginning, then they are intercepted at one point, and then they actually enter the movie and cause this this disruption, and then they're gone. Yeah, the function of them in the plot is very interesting, and I remember the first time just being like, what am I watching? And then they disappear for a yep. while, and you forget about them. And then I do, I love when they show up. Like, I do think these guys are very effective again at like whatever the dead eyed thing is or the sort of weight of their past and their presence. I love when the, when the bully um, has a little fender bender with yes. them. And he shoots them the finger. What the f- was that? I don't know. No, I don't want to know. All, he's got all this bravado and then they have the reverse cut and you see these two guys looking at him and he's like i don't like i don't know who they are and i don't want to know them and it's like yeah these like monsters exist Seriously. i love that at the beginning of the movie it's like it's like monsters exist but they get tired and they get hungry and they get thirsty so like making a very bleak comment on humans in general because like any of us could be monsters but yeah before we could try to keep our shout out short uh i do just want to say i love maybe a happy accident that Greg Burke kind of looks like Vigo. Yeah, I like that you put that in the notes. Um, That's interesting to me. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but there's something that just... I mean, I remember the first time I saw the movie, I thought that was Vigo in the different timeline. And it wasn't until they showed up in Millbrook that I was like, oh, this is just like a plot function. And also an example, right? Um, but yeah, no, those are two great guys to point out. I'm going to point out, uh, you know, maybe a little bit better known, uh, uh, more high-profile actor, William Hurt. <sighs> who shows up and bats a thousand at the end of this world class actor just co- shows up like relief pitching and just, just knocks it out uh, to really mix up my metaphors there. But um, <laughs> I, I I'm obviously we've gone over before. I'm such a William Hurt fan and I uh, like, I think he just kills it at the end of this. And I love, there are many aspects of his performance. I love, I did want to note, 
this feels like something again based on everything you've said about the collaborative nature of this movie the thing where him and vigo touch foreheads yeah right and sort of they're coming back together as brothers i wouldn't be surprised if they came up with that themselves it's so intimate yep. right and like such a powerful thing to do before everything else that happens in that scene but what i really want to shout out is he may have the best line in the movie i'll have you put it in here you're gonna to have to bleep out one of the words i know what you're talking about how do you fuck that up how do you fuck that up yeah you know what i'm talking about it's so good and it really it's very funny in uh maybe an otherwise not terribly funny movie but uh, I love it so much. It, um, he adds a sense of humor to the end, which is not mm-hmm. something that I would have expected from a Cronenberg movie. But as soon as William Hurt enters mm-hmm. in this kind of character, like with this kind of character at his disposal, you can mm-hmm. open the world up to possibilities like that. Yeah. Yeah. It takes on a bit of a different yeah. feel while still also sort of like landing the plane. But uh, yeah, I really love that, that final I act. don't know if you saw... I love the first act. I love the middle act. Like, we, there's so much that we could have done a month on this movie. Seriously. And I don't know if you saw in my notes, but I didn't even know this at the time, but William Hurt got the Oscar nomination. Yes. Which yes, is wild. Which is... That is, that is like supporting, supporting, right? supporting but still yes. like that's the Oscars like to do that every now and then where it's like this like legacy actor showed up and just killed one 10 scene. minutes one scene at, five days yeah, of shooting I think it is it is wild but um I, I don't think I don't think they're wrong but also I mean I don't really want to get into the whole Oscar thing no I just thought it was many, really interesting because I didn't know that actually about yeah, this yeah. movie uh and then yeah so as we've mentioned many times uh, as chosen by you we're going to talk about the fly next week so we'll talk even more cronenberg earlier in his career more about the effects and the body horror and uh i mean gina uh gina davis and uh and and uh jeff goldblum as well so that'll be a fun chat and uh for our recommendations uh i had a number of different ones i didn't know if i want to talk about a, a different cronenberg movie or just other ones really what i came up Within the end, we're a bunch that are. I like how they treat violence as well because I think it's meaningful. I think they use it instead of just depict it for excitement and titillation. So the one that I'm going to go with is uh, "You Were Never Really There." Did I get that title yep, right? Yeah, you on, got I it. I have to redo that. The Lynn Ramsey film. Yeah, by Lynn Ramsey uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. Sorry, you were never really here. Oh, See, keep damn, getting it sorry. Wrong. Yeah, 2017 film by Lynn Ramsey. This film very intentionally focuses on only the effects of violence. So there are many people hurt and dispatched in this movie, and it's cut specifically to not show you the violent act, but to just show you what's left over afterwards. So I think it's that is another a good, good movie sort of. Yeah, I think it's in this in this realm. I don't know if I'd do a double feature. It'd be a little bit bleak. Um, but if you haven't seen You Were Never Really Here... Uh, Walking Phoenix is a great physical performance. Uh, I think it's a really powerful movie. And if I haven't spoke about Lynn Ramsey on here before, she's one of like I we'll think get there eventually. A, she's a premier filmmaker, one of the best in the world right now. And this movie, you were never really here. I think is in my top ten all time for sound design. Uh, I think it's yeah, it works miracles with what it does for sound design, and I, it's such a huge component of this movie really good recommendation i like that one a lot tough one tough one to rewatch to be honest i haven't gone back to it since but 
very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to choose, I wanted to pick a Canadian film, but then I actually found a connection between the Canadian film I wanted to recommend and this one, which was great. So the guy, the guy who plays Sheriff Sam in this movie named Peter McNeil mm-hmm. uh, also popped up in another, like, first of all, this guy's been in every CBC show you can name uh, and mm-hmm. every Canadian TV series you can possibly think of. But he showed up in a newer movie called The Kid Detective, which I love. It's a 2020 film directed mm-hmm. by Evan Morgan, uh, stars Caitlin Chalmers Rosado and uh, the much more noteworthy Adam Brody in kind of a return to cinema. He is amazing in this movie, uh, and he technically is the lead. I don't know why Caitlin Chalmers Rosado is first on the credit list, but this movie is awesome. I don't really have a thematic connection like yours, but this being one of like the coolest Canadian shot films I've seen in a long time, I thought it would be worth bringing up. It's also criminally underseen, so check this one out. It's a good mix of dark, dark humor... Um, detective story, uh, yet it has like this bleakness that's really refreshing about it, and I highly recommend. Um, it's got music produced by by Canadians. It was filmed uh, in in like mid North Ontario, um, uh, so yeah, no, highly recommend as well. It's a great movie, and I was hoping I was also kind of conflicted about whether to promote some Canadian movies or even talk about like recommend a Cronenberg movie that we're not going to talk about, but I thought I'd go on the violence theme. Uh, no, I think um, both are, it's nice. both our recommendations work. Yeah. It's nice to have uh, nice to have both there. And uh, I guess with that, we'll wrap this one up. We'll see you in two weeks for the fly for Canada and Cronenberg month. And uh, in the meantime, I guess if anything that history of violence is going to tell you is don't hurt other people. And, uh, I don't know, if you didn't grow up with someone, you don't know their past, so uh, tread, tread lightly. Yep. Yeah.